Well, this morning I am in the book of Hosea, which I am saying is the craziest love story ever, which seems kind of an odd topic to choose for a Mother's Day. But let's start by going back to some of the great love stories in the Bible. And we can go all the way back to the very first love story, which would be Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. Can you imagine a relationship without sin and in a perfect setting and how wonderful that must have been? Or we can think of Abraham and Sarah or Solomon and his bride. We don't know her name. That is the one who is the subject in the Song of Solomon. There are other examples that aren't so great. And I think of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and those names still have negative connotations thousands of years after they have died, even among people that don't have much biblical knowledge. Well, how about in our lifetime? Uh, I think of some people that uh, I had so much respect for, Billy and Ruth Graham, married for 63 years. Or if you want another example of royalty, how about this time a good example, Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II, married for 73 years and very much in love. Or I could share with you about my own heritage. My maternal grandparents were married for 49 years. My paternal grandparents, who married younger in life, were married for 71 years. And my parents were married for 51 years before my, God, my dad went to heaven. And then Cindy and I will be celebrating 37 years this summer. But I tell you, a good and long-lasting marriage in Hollywood is hard to find. Now listen to this list of ridiculously short marriages. This first one is somebody that you may not uh, know of. Her name was Gloria Swanson. She was an actress from about 100 years ago. And she was married at the age of 17 for the first time. And uh, she was married a total of six times. The first and the last marriages lasted about a year each. Or uh, coming into the modern times here, Pamela Anderson and Rick Solomon were married for 10 weeks before they were divorced. And then they tried again six years later, and the second marriage lasted a whole year. Then we have Carmen Electra and Dennis Rodman were married for six months, but Rodman had filed for an annulment after only nine days. Now, I mean, who could have seen that relationship tanking, right? Now, here's one for those who are a bit older. Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman were married for 42 days. Then there comes along Pamela Anderson again, this time with John Peters, and they lasted for 12 whole days. But the one that takes the cake, I think, is singer Britney Spears and Seinfeld actor Jason Alexander, who were married for 56 hours. Well, today's sermon is about the craziest love story I've ever heard. It's the story of a broken vow and a broken home, a broken heart, and a broken life. But in other ways, this story is so unique that it, makes, it ranks as one of the most amazing stories in all of literature. I'd be surprised, though, if you've heard many sermons from the book of Hosea, and I'm probably pretty sure that you didn't have this story in Sunday school when you were growing up. But God has chosen this sad, sordid story of a broken-hearted prophet to reveal his love and to demonstrate his grace. So let's see as this love story begins. Now, since the story of Hosea is 14 chapters long, uh, I would appreciate if you allow me just to summarize it and not to read the whole thing. And as I was reading through different translations this week, 
I decided that I was going to teach you from the New Living Translation. And I'm doing that because as I read the story from different translations, and specifically from the one we normally use, the ESV, uh, I found it to be much more difficult to understand. And the, the uh, verse from Nehemiah 8.8 8 explains why I've chosen to do this. It says, They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. That's why we do this. We want you to understand, so why not choose a translation that makes it easier to understand? So the setting for the story of Hosea takes place in the city of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then you've got Hosea, who is this young preacher who is told by God to meet and to win the heart of a young woman by the name of Gomer. Now, that's kind of a funny name for a woman. And I went back in our church database, and I didn't find any Gomers that go to our church. And if I did, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been a woman. So let's pick this up in uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, God said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel. Now, the literal meaning of that is God will scatter. Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter Lo-Rumahamai, which means not loved. For I will no longer love, show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. Now, skipping down to verse 8. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Rumahamai, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. This is their third child, a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Am-I, which means not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Now, this hardly seems like the setting for a love story. Gomer was part of an easygoing lifestyle of that day, something that we might term in our days as, if it feels good, do it. Hosea was the exact opposite. He was a man of character and a a man of godliness. And he brought everything into the marriage that Gomer didn't. Hosea brought purity and Gomer was a prostitute. I imagine Gomer must have been swept off her feet by this young man who was intelligent and a man of position in that society. And most importantly, he was a man of God. He had the heart of a hero and the passion of a poet and the zeal of a prophet. Let me just uh, pause this story for a moment and share some advice with those of you who are single, whether you've never been married or whether you find yourself single again. Who you marry is the second most important decision you will ever make. The first and most important decision is to follow Jesus Christ. And we're told in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This will affect the rest of your life from this day through eternity. The second most important decision you will ever make is who you marry, and that will affect the rest of your life, either for good or for bad. 
Let me share an illustration with you of a man who was married probably the most times in modern days. And, you know, you may think, well, uh, Solomon was married to how many women, how many hundreds, but that was all at one time. Uh, I'm talking about somebody who was married and divorced and married and divorced over and over again. So when I think of that, you think, well, okay, we know Henry VIII was married six times. You think he would have gone for eight to match his name, right? Then you've got film star Elizabeth Taylor, who was uh, married eight times. And then TV actress Zaza Gabor, who was married nine times. And those might be your top candidates. However, you've probably never heard of Glenn Wolfe, who easily claims the title of the world's most married person by eclipsing all three of those combined. Starting at age 22, Wolfe married 29 times. Some of those marriages ended in days, while others lasted years. Now, what would cause someone to want to end one marriage and almost immediately start another one? Psychologists who have studied Wolf's life suggest that as soon as he committed to a person, he started uh, experiencing to varying degrees remorse. His marriage would experience some difficulties, and he'd start looking for a way out and for the next one. Now, it's kind of sad how his life ended because even though he had more than 40 children and many of his ex-spouses were still living, he died alone and penniless. His lifeless body, and this I found this interesting, he had a tattoo on his forearm of a tied knot. His body went unclaimed in the county morgue for months. So let's get back to our Bible story. I imagine that when Hosea was told by God to marry Gomer, he must have thought that she was uh, as pure as the lily of the valley that was described in one of his favorite love poems, the Song of Solomon. I mean, who would have thought differently, right? God was the one who told him to marry her. But as the days passed and Hosea grew to know Gomer better, he realized that the petals of her purity had already been plucked and trampled on under the passions of impure men. Yet it was a command from God that told Hosea to marry Gomer. I imagine that the prophet thought, well, her past isn't that great, but since God was the one that brought us together, I'm sure that our future is going to be wonderful. But he was wrong. While Hosea spent his days as a prophet calling the people of Israel back to God in an all-out effort to avert disaster, Gomer did not share the heart of her husband. And so day by day, Gomer drifted back to the old wild life from which she had come. And day after day, Hosea would return home wondering where his wife was. And night after night, he would lay awake waiting for his wife to return. I'm confident that the prophet must have prayed about this. I'm I'm sure that he would have taken his burden to the Lord. And one day, it seemed that God had answered his prayer because Gomer gave birth to a baby. And as the prophet held that infant, can't you just see him thinking, this is God's doing. This baby is going to bring us close together. And he called the name of the child, as we heard, Jezreel, which you remember means God will scatter. But Jezreel was also the name of a literal city that had played a tragic part in Israel's history. It was in Jezreel that the apostasy under Ahab and his queen Jezebel came to its frightening conclusion. 
It was in Jezreel that Queen Jezebel was thrown from the uh, window of a tower and she died as she hit the streets and the dogs came and ate her body. So when Hosea was calling his son Jezreel, he was making the boy, his marriage, and his family an object lesson of God's relationship to his people. It would be kind of like if a Jewish person today had a son and then named him Ravensbrück the name of the concentration camp that Hitler used to murder millions of Jews during World War II. The name Ravensbrück would bring back horrible memories of suffering of a past generation. Every time Hosea called his son, whether at home or in the marketplace, that name would be a reminder of the fact that in the past, God had dealt with a nation's sin. Now we're going to see this love story unraveling. Remember the meaning of the names of Hosea's three children. God will scatter, not loved, not my people. That does several things. One, they give us a sketch of the nation of Israel. But second, I believe that it gives us some insight into what was taking place in the prophet's family. Because the name of the third child means not my people or could mean not no kin of mine. That indicates that in bitterness And in brokenheartedness, Hosea suspected and then soon believed with certainty that these children born into his home were not even his children. But even though Gomer was living in adultery, Hosea refused to divorce her. And then one day, another blow fell. Gomer left him. You could imagine that Hosea came home and found this note on the table that says, I'm leaving tired of being tied down. I want to have my freedom, and I'm going back to my former way of life. Oh, and on top of that, she wanted to make sure that Hosea knew that those children were not his. But even so, she wasn't taking the children with her. They were going to be his responsibility. It wasn't bad enough that she stabbed him in the back, but now she's twisting the blade. You could imagine what happened to the prophet that night. He has to be both father and mother to these young children, as well as being a broken-hearted husband. He fixes dinner, he prays with his kids, he tucks them into bed, and watches them drift off to sleep. But there wouldn't be any sleep for Hosea that night. Even though Gomer has left his home, she has not left his heart. You can imagine how the gossip went across the backyard fences in that community. Hey, did you hear? prophet's wife left him. Somebody else might say, serves him right. He's always butting into our business, but he can't even keep his own home together. But there were others who knew Hosea and knew Gomer, and they knew how she had played him for the fool. And they may have simply shrugged their shoulders and said, he's better off without her. But the love story goes on. Hosea loved Gomer, and he couldn't forget. And I suspect that when Gomer left Hosea, she must have thought that she was going to be better off. Undoubtedly, she was lured from his side by the memories of exotic food and exciting clothes and life in the fast lane. But as it sometimes happens with people who take that path in life, it at first seems to be all glamour and going well and going upward, but soon it turns down and goes to the bottom. And that's what happened to Gomer. Let me share with you an illustration of a kiss that changed a prodigal into a pastor. 
The late Joe Bailey was a gentle and godly Christian leader, and he once told about one of his sons who rebelled back in the days of the hippie movement and moved into one of those communal flop houses. And late one night, while after Joe had gone to bed, he got a telephone call that said that his son was in one of the Chicago police stations. So he got out of bed and he went down to the police station and was told his son wasn't there. So he went to another police station and then to another one before realizing that this was somebody's idea of a cruel, practical joke. So even though it was about 2 a.m. before he went home, Bailey went to the flop house where he knew his son was living. And as he stepped over some of the bodies of those sleeping or passed out on the floor, he found his son sleeping and kissed him lightly before he left. When Bailey told the story, he said that his son was now a pastor and serving the Lord. But years later, that young man told his father, Dad, did you know what turned me around? It was that night that you came into my room and kissed me. You thought I was asleep, but I wasn't. I thought if my dad loves me that much to come all the way down here and kiss me, I need to get my life right with God. After Gomer left Hosea, she passed from one man to another until she found herself with a man who couldn't even provide for her basic needs. And Hosea watched from a distance this downward spiral uh, that his wife was taking. And when when he realized the situation that she was in, living in poverty, he went and found the man that she was with. And he said, are you the man that's living with Gomer? You mean currently? Ouch, ooh, that would have hurt, right? Yes, currently. Well, what if I am? Well, I'm her husband. The man probably thought Hosea had come to seek revenge or, or maybe fight. But Hosea said, no, you don't understand. I love my wife, and I want you to do something for her as a favor to me. Here's some money. I want you to make sure that her basic needs are taken care of. The man must have looked at Hosea like, are you kidding? But when he seized the coins in Hosea's outstretched hand, he probably thought, what a fool. And he took the money. It doesn't seem to make sense to us that a man is going to pay good money to support a woman who has betrayed him. Someplace in the shadows, we see Hosea watching as he catches a glimpse of his wife, whom he still loves. And uh, as the man comes with the provisions that he's bought using Hosea's money, he sees his wife reach out and, and hug this man who is provided with somebody else's money, the man who actually does love her. But if you're tempted to sit in judgment on Gomer, I remind you that's the way you and I have acted towards God all of our lives. It's from God's hand that we receive life's rich blessing, food for our table, clothes for our body, and a warm place to live. And yet how easily we can thank everyone and everything except the God who provided them. Sometimes we thank the government for its supply, or we thank family and friends, or we take credit ourselves. I mean, I worked hard for this, right? Everyone and everything gets the credit except the God from whom all blessings flow. God says, I love you, and I want you to know that after you're through with your running and going astray, I'll be here for you. 
Does God really love us like that? Everything in the Bible and everything in God's creation testifies that God does indeed love you like that. And yet, even though Hosea was paying the keep for Gomer, she doesn't change. And so in the latter part of chapter 2, verse 14, Hosea describes, uh, decides to take his hands off of her life. She has planted the seed, let her eat the bitter fruit. She's planted the wind, she'll weep the whirlwind. And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. And so in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, we read, But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. Hosea is saying, I'm going to lead her out into the wilderness. I'm going to allow her to stumble. And there in that awful, dreadful place, I will open to her again the door of salvation and hope. And what God did with the nation of Israel, God sometimes does with us. Sometimes when we persist in our running and our going astray, it's almost as if God takes his hands off of our lives and lets us suffer and feel the consequences of what we've done. We stumble into those desert places, places of broken dreams and broken hearts and broken lives. But it's often in that dreadful place that God opens to us a door of salvation and hope. That's what happened in the life of Hosea and Gomer. Because when you turn to chapter 3, you discover that Gomer has sunk even lower until she fell into the hands of a man who didn't care for her at all. And that man decided that he was going to sell her into slavery. In the ancient world, slavery was an established institution there was hardly a city that did not have some time during the year, some places many times during the year, a place where men and women were bought and sold like animals. It was evidently to such a place that Gomer was taken and to such a place that Hosea was called to go. Now imagine the scene. Gomer is led up to the slave block and then the folks on the edge of the crowd there see that Hosea is out there on the outskirts. And you can hear the gossip. Well, he's come to see that she gets what she deserves. He's here to see her get her punishment, to be sold into slavery. And the bidding begins. And someone says, I'll give you 10 pieces of silver for her. And somebody else offers 12. And then Hosea offers 15 pieces of silver. And then another man says, well, I'll give you 15 pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. And Hosea quickly counters with 15 pieces of silver, a bushel of barley, and a measure of wine. And the gavel comes down, and Hosea pushes forward to buy his wife. But he doesn't buy her to punish her. He buys her to redeem her. What Hosea is saying is something like this. I have bought you now, and I want you to live with me. I want you to be faithful to me, but I promise no matter what, even if you're not faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. How could a man do that? I mean, how could a man go before a crowd that knew him and then buy his wife back to nurse her back to purity? How could anyone do that? The answer is found in verse 1 of chapter 3 in one of the great sentences in the Bible. The Lord says to Hosea, 
Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. The reason that Hosea was able to love Gomer as he did was that Hosea understood God's redeeming love for himself. He knew deep down that he had also played the harlot in his own relationship with God. And from this prophecy of Hosea, there are just two lessons I'd like to lay before you. The first is for those of you who have come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're Christ followers. Let's read from chapter 3, verse 3. It says, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man, and so I will live with you. In other words, Hosea is saying, I've redeemed you. I've brought you back home. I want you to live with me and for me in faithfulness. And that's one of the lessons that we can learn from this story, that God does not love you because of what you do. God loves you in spite of what you do. God does not love you because of what you are. He loves you in spite of what you are. But when you understand how much God loves you, you respond to him with love and praise and sacrifice and service. This is a hard lesson for us to learn. We like the system of, I do this and I get this. I put in my 40 to 50 hours at work and I get a paycheck. I take care of my neighbor's yard while he's on vacation and I can expect him to do the same for me. I raise my children with love and they choose a nice rest home for me that doesn't serve liver and lima beans for dinner. I live a good life and I throw $20 in the offering and God will repay me with a good life. That's actually heresy. That is not the gospel and that is not the truth of God. God does not bless us or reward us because of what we do. It's in spite of what we do. Titus 3.5 says, God saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. God does not love missionaries and pastors more than he loves other people. If you decide to give your life to God at some time in the future, he will not love you more that day than he does this day. God does not love generous givers more than others. If he did love us more for what we do or what we give, that would mean that the God of the universe is indebted to his creation. And that just doesn't even make sense. When you truly understand God's love and God's grace, you will respond in wonder and worship and praise. Is the point of this story to say how awful Gomer was? or how wonderful Hosea was, only if we view the Bible merely as a history book. Do we read the Bible just to learn about the past? Do we come to church just to see our friends and to hear an encouraging homily? I think you can tell by the way that I'm phrasing these questions that the answer to both is no. So why do we read the Bible? Why do we come to church and listen to a sermon? Because the Bible, while a lot of it is historical, it is not a history book. 
while recounting parts of history, God is speaking to us today, just as he did to our parents and our grandparents before us, and just as he will to future generations. Yes, Hosea and Gomer's story is true, and it is historical, but it's also allegorical. In addition to being a true story, the story also represents religious qualities and ideas. That means that God is telling you and I something through the story of Hosea and Gomer. You see, in the allegory, God is Hosea and we are Gomer. Now, you probably don't like that I said that, but it's true. We have been unfaithful to God just like Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. And God never gives up on us just like Hosea never gave up on Gomer. God's love story never gives up. There's another lesson, and that lesson is directed to those of you who have not yet come to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You may still be on a journey, but you're not there yet. You may feel deserted sometimes. You may cry from the depths of your heart, where is God? The answer from the book of Hosea is that God isn't lost, you are. God has pursued you up a hill called Calvary, and through a tunnel of an empty tomb and down the twisted paths of your life to this place at this time. Do you know why God pursues you? Pure and simple, it's because He loves you. Even when you resist Him, He loves you. Several famous people were asked what they felt was the saddest word in the English language. Here's what some of them said. Lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II said, the word but. Poet John Keats said forlorn. Psychiatrist Carl Menninger said unloved. Statesman Bernard Baruch said hopeless. The poet and abolitionist John Greenleaf Whittier said, for of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. Countess Alexandra Tolstoy said, The saddest world in, uh, word in all languages which has brought the world to its present condition is atheism. Put all of these answers together and you have a faint picture of a person without Christ. I think of that word that Keats used so dramatically, forlorn. It's the English form of a Dutch word which means lost. But the Word of God through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, gives the ultimate description. Apart from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of God, and you did not know the the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. And if you ask me, where is God? The answer is, He's right here speaking to you again through His Word. He's right here waiting for you to respond with love to His love, waiting for you to respond with trust to His promises, waiting for you to cast yourself with a reckless abandon upon the grace of God, and waiting for you to discover in the depth of your experience what it means to be loved by God according to the love He demonstrated through the prophet Isaiah. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this story, um, honestly, it's graphic and it's tragic. And it, it seems 
to go against what we know about you for you to say to one of your servants, go marry somebody who's going to be unfaithful to you over and over again. But Father, you have used this for thousands of years to call us to you. Father, I pray for those who are still on that journey looking for answers that they would turn to you whether every answer is given to them this day, that they would trust you that you will give the answers in your time. And for those who have come into your family but are running in a reckless way, may this be a reminder that you don't condemn them, but you call them back and ask repeatedly, come back to me. And Father, I pray that this would be that day because you are a God of unending love. In Jesus' name, amen.